Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you again this morning. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, Ephesians 3. Every time I hear that I've been married for 10 years, it just doesn't seem possible. It was just this last August, we, my wife and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary. It's amazing how time flies. I don't feel like I, I'm old enough to be married 10 years. It is a pleasure to be with you again today, and um, <clears throat> we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, specifically in the third chapter, in these few verses, verses 14 to 19. Would you follow along as I just read these verses from God's Word? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be changed and affected by your word this morning. I pray that you would fill us up with a knowledge of you, unlike any we have experienced before, God, that we would see new things from your word this morning, that we would be expecting to receive from you this morning that the truths found in these passages, in, this, in these verses, would change our lives, that it would affect everything. It would affect the way we live, the way we relate to one another, the way that we parent our children, the way we love our wives and love our husbands, the way we work. May it affect everything in our lives for your glory. I thank you for this church Thank you for the pastors at this church, dear friends. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless Al, Corey, and Jose as they are away. Bring them home safely. But in their absence, may your church be edified and built up this morning. Because of who you are, may we grow in our understanding of love this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, whenever you talk about love in our culture, it's, it can be a, a difficult subject to talk about because of, well, love is taken on different forms, I think, in our society, in our culture, in our day than it has in previous days. And a question that I often think about is how do you how do you measure love how do you measure love you know we we can't we can't take out a scale or some kind of a ruler to figure out you know how how much i love or am being loved and um you know there are all kinds of jokes around there you go into a restaurant and there's a like a meter and you can put a quarter in and stick your finger on the on the sensor and it's supposed to give you some kind of a reading from one to ten about how how much love is inside of you, and um, 
I mean, you've seen those, right? I mean, they're all, it's just, you know, they're just money, ways for them to make money. Uh, there was actually this test I found on the internet. You know, you can even go to the internet and take a love test. And this one was called the love calculator. And all it was, what, you just put in your name and you put in someone else's name and it told you your chance of survival in terms of love. So, of course, I did my wife and I, Nikki, and, and so we typed in Adam, typed in Nikki, and it gave, gave us a 0% chance. <laughs> and it was called Dr. Love, and it said, Dr. Love thinks a relationship might work out between Adam and Nikki, but the chance is very small. It says, um, do not sit back and think it'll all work out fine because it might not be working out the way you want it to. Again, the chance of this relationship working out is very small. So even when you do work hard on it, it still might not work out. It's like, this is, this is our best effort at, at measuring love. It's a, fool's, it's a fool's game. Trying to determine our level of love for someone or something, it's, it's complicated. And if it's, if it's something you're seeking after, it's often dangerous to try to do. Especially when we use superficial criteria to measure the love one has for another. Um, if you're familiar with William Shakespeare, you know, he, he understood the difficulty of trying to evaluate the amount of love within a person, and so he wrote this tragedy for us. Um, it's, it's called King Lear, and you might be familiar with the story. I'll give you a brief synopsis of what the premise of the story is. King Lear is a king. He's about to retire, and he has three daughters, and he wants to split up his kingdom between his three daughters. And so he brings the three daughters in, and he says, okay, I want you to, I want you to communicate to me how much you love me. And so the first two daughters, the older two daughters, they come in and they, they just lavish with words upon their father, say how much they love him, almost to an inappropriate level, how much they say they love him. And all they're seeking is wealth and an opportunity for power. And so they just flatter and flatter and give all these overstatements to tell their dad how much they love him more than anything in the world. They love him. And then the youngest daughter her name is Cordelia. She comes in and she's sitting there watching her two sisters do this. And while he, he says, how much do you love me? And she, she actually doesn't even say anything. She can't speak. She says, I love you as, as much as a daughter should love her father. And she says, look, if, if my sisters love you as much as they say they do, they're never going to have a husband because it's inappropriate even what they're saying. And she says, I, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. So her father, Lear, he becomes so angry, so enraged that he, and she was his favorite daughter, but he, he cuts her off and gives the kingdom to these two other sisters. And eventually it ruins his kingdom. He goes insane. And, and it really is, a, it's a tragic story. And I I think Shakespeare paints a picture of our condition to love and to be loved is a part of who we are. And it's a good thing, but, but so often this good thing, which is love, it becomes perverted. And, and we create a list of rules and requirements that someone must meet in order, to tell, in order for us to tell that they truly love us or even that we love them. 
King Lear, he, he became enraged because he was blinded by a corrupted definition of love. And he thought, he thought, look, the person that could convince me in the next five minutes with their words is the one who loves me most. But this isn't how we're to evaluate love. But I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us do this in one way or another. And the question is, why? Why do we do this? Well, I think... It's because our our definition of love has downgraded into something way beneath its intended meaning. It's become an emotion that comes and goes with the changing of the seasons, right? We, We fall in love quickly and we fall out of love quickly. I might be in love today, but I might be out of love tomorrow. And so we treat other people in our loving relationships like we do you know, people in the entertainment business or in the movie business, right? As long as you're doing something that entertains me, as long as you're doing something that makes me happy, you know, I'll keep coming, I'll pay money, I'll love you, but once you start to bore me, you know, I'm just going to move on. You know, we have our favorite flavors of the day, and then we treat love. Well, I don't really like that flavor anymore, so I'm, I'm going I'm to move on. I mean, love, I think, has become one of the more overused words in our language, and I mean, we love everything, right? I mean, how can we say, I love my wife, and I love Coke. Or I love vanilla ice cream, and I love my wife. I love my car, I love my phone. You know, we, we have one word for love, and that's the problem. It's one word to describe something so complicated, so deep. And the, uh, you've probably heard this and you know this, if you studied scripture at any length, you know, the, the Greek culture had a few different words for love. Right, they had three different words for love. They had eros love, they had phileo love, and they had agape love. And eros love was that longing, sensual, uh, usually from attraction type of love. The, the philia or phileo love was like a brotherly affection, a friendship. And the agape love was used when describing affection versus a, attraction. And that would be more along the lines of how we feel towards a, a spouse. And often we describe that type of love as how God views us, that I know it's often been used in the words like unconditional. And what's interesting is with those three words, they actually attached a portion of the body to those kinds of love, to, to those three words for love, right? Eros love was, was the love that was associated with the stomach, like craving. You know, like I, I want a hamburger, <laughs> so I go after it and I'm, I'm eager for it. It's that almost an unhealthy type of love and uh, phileo love was was associated with the heart, and the agape love was generally associated with the mind, and it was considered the weakest form of love because the desires of the stomach, the eros love, us- usually overtake the mind. Right? I mean, when you're hungry, when I mean, anybody who's tried to diet knows in your mind you know, don't eat that. And your stomach says, you're going to eat that. And so you eat. Well, I think that we can understand and we can identify in our culture that so many people, what they define as genuine love is, is really the lowest form of love, which is eros love. And so much of how we love is shallow and selfish, but... but This isn't what we learn in Scripture, and I believe that God, through Paul in this passage, addresses this issue. 
And he wants us to understand something about love, something much greater than just feeding our appetites with the flavor of the day. So right in in the middle of this letter to the Ephesian Christians, Paul breaks out into this prayer. He breaks out into a prayer for them, and he communicates to them what, what he hopes for. And the focus of the prayer is for them to have a greater understanding of love. So he kind of he gives us a picture of love as a, as a structure, and we're going to use the image of a structure to, to help us navigate through these passages. And so we're going to look at love's foundation, love's design, and love's construction. If you think of it in terms of a building or some kind of a tall structure, there's a foundation, there's a design of it, and then there's a construction that you do to, to, to build it to the top. And that's going to kind of be your are outlined for these few passages. And so we're going to look first at love's foundation. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. See, Paul prays that God would strengthen their inner being through the power of his spirit. And it's, it's unfortunate. We don't have a lot of time to unpack this verse as it ought to be unpacked. You know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached 16 sermons just on these few verses. And we're going to spend you know, 20, 30 minutes talking about it. But Paul begins with this amazing plea for God's strength to penetrate their innermost being. And he gives the reason why he prays this. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I mean, he's he's praying that Christ would be the center, the center of everything. Everything they do would revolve around Christ. And when Christ resides in this primary position in our lives, something happens Love becomes the foundational and driving force behind everything we do. Do you see it? Christ comes in, he takes residence, he dwells, and when that happens, the foundation of our lives, yeah, it's Christ, but it becomes manifested in in love, in how we love in this world. So, before we can get into any kind of discussion concerning love, Christ has to be the center. Through faith, Christ must take up a permanent resident within the deepest recesses of our being. And when that happens, the first result is that we become rooted and grounded. It's those terms he uses, rooted and grounded. And because of the strength, the strengthening that God's Spirit has done in our inner being... And as Christ dwells in our hearts, there's a new creation, and the chief characteristic of that new creation is love. And the word order in the original language shows you that love is the focus. It literally says that you, in love, being rooted and grounded. I mean, this is amazing, because when Christ truly enters a life, when Christ truly transforms a life, love becomes the foremost characteristic of that life. You call yourself Christian. I call myself Christian. If, if we fall into that category, then love has to be a fruit of the new life. Has to be. And throughout this message, I mean, be thinking, okay, is that, is that true of my life? And we're going to look at what that, you know, how to unpack that and unfold that as we go. The uh, ESV study Bible, it says... In its commentary, it says it really well. It says, love is the natural and necessary outcome of a living faith that is the fruit of Christ's work in the Christian. So 
Paul to help us understand the foundational nature of love, he uses these two images. He uses rooted and grounded. We're going to spend some time looking at at the the similarities and the differences of these two words. See, the the first picture, rooted, makes us think of what? Like a tree, right? And the second, grounded, gives us the image of a building. And the the first questions we want to ask about this, okay, is how similar and how different are, are these two terms being rooted and grounded? Um, clearly, the two images together give us this idea of permanence, something that's permanent. Both trees and buildings, they have structure that goes beneath the surface, which allow them to grow really high or be constructed really high. I mean, they're made to last. Trees have a a strong and vast root system to gather the nutrients it needs to grow and to support its height. And the same with a building. The taller the building, the stronger the foundation has to be. So we see both of these images give us a picture of depth and strength. But what's awesome is that Paul, I don't think, could understand how we understand the idea of permanence and strength on the same level because well, we just have, I mean, the buildings we have today are, are enormous. The, the tallest building in the world is, it's in Dubai. It's called the Burj Khalifa. And that's the, um, the picture, I have a picture of it for you just to let you see what it looks like. It's uh, 2,200 feet. It's huge. 800 meters for you, that like metric. Um, 160 stories. It's over twice the size of the Empire State Building. So that may give you some context. Over twice as big as the Empire State Building. That's how tall it is. But below the surface, there's 164 feet below the surface of foundation. 192 concrete pylons are, are built to make this thing stand above the ground. That's a lot of depth, a lot of foundation. I mean, this is the kind of building I think we should be thinking of when we read this passage, when it says, okay, be grounded in love. We think of, okay, structure, huge, tall, tallest building, tallest man-made structure in the world. But in order to make a building that tall, you have to have a strong and deep foundation or else it's not going to stand. The first gust of wind that comes by it's going to fall. Well, those are, the, those are the similarities between rooted and grounded, but there are some differences. See, I believe that Paul uses these two metaphors because there's subtle yet important differences between being rooted and being grounded. I mean, if all, we, if all he wanted to talk about was strength and permanence, then he could just use the building metaphor and, and that would have been enough, but he didn't. He, he gives us a picture of a tree. See, and the question is, what does a tree have that a man-made building doesn't have? It has life. It has life. I mean, yeah, trees can get big. They're strong, they're durable, but trees are a picture of life, of energy, of vitality. Trees grow. There's, there's no life in a building. Once a building's completed, it's done. It'll never grow. There's no life flowing through it. See, we looked at the tallest building in the world. Well, the tallest tree in the world... Is a, is a Hyperion Coast Redwood. Almost 400 feet tall, 379 feet they grow. And they can live, it's said they can live um, for around 2,000 years. Their root systems, they, they go in a radial fashion from 
the trunk of the tree up to 80 feet. What's amazing is that a tree that that's, that's that big grows from the smallest of seeds. There's life. Trees are always a representation of life, of growth, of something that feeds. And, and these pictures, they emphasize for us the life of a Christian. See, the Christian is rooted like the giant redwood. It's, it's grounded like the tallest skyscraper, but not, not, in, not in our own abilities, how good we are, what we've done, our money, our success, our power, but what is it rooted and grounded in? In love. It's the foundation. You, as a Christian, are rooted, are planted, are deep. Not in how good you are, not in how successful you are, but in love. It's our root system. It's the soil in which we are rooted and are going to grow. And it's the foundation upon which we're built. So that is the foundation. That's our, that's our support. That's, that's the groundwork. And so then we look at, okay, well, what's, what's love's design? And the question we should ask ourselves is, okay, so what? We're rooted and grounded in love. That's nice. But to what end is this love leading me? What's God's purpose in all of it? So I want to see if we can track Paul's logic here, because I think this is, I think it's truly helpful for us and, and could be life-changing if we grab a hold of this. I mean, Paul's prayer is that we are strengthened by God's Spirit in our inner being. We're indwelt by Christ so that we're rooted and grounded in love so that we might comprehend, and you can put that up on the screen, comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. Put up that next one, please. Yeah. So you see the logic, right? Whoop, go back. One more. There it is. All right. Strengthened by God's Spirit in our inner being, indwelt by Christ, so that we're rooted and grounded in love, so that we might comprehend the dimensions of God's love for us. I mean, do, do you see it? We, we're rooted and grounded in love so that we might begin to grasp the love of Christ. I mean, this is so different. This is so radical. It's, it's so different than what we're, what we're used to. Love is so unselfish. Everything that we're taught about love from romance novels, from People magazine, from The Bachelor, it's, it's wrong. It's, it's not about me. It's not about having all my needs met. It's about trying to comprehend the vast dimensions of God's love. This, is, this will save your marriage if you are. If you're thinking about being married one day, understand it now that love is not, it's not a checklist of things that I need to get checked off so that I can, I can be happier you love me by meeting a list of criteria. That's, that's the love calculator. That's, that's not what's going to help you. The breadth and length and height, the depth. I mean, do you see Paul's underlying assumption through all of this? He's, I think it's this. It's that we don't, we don't adequately appreciate Christ's love. Because if we did, then he wouldn't have to tell us all of this. We'd be living it. I mean, comprehending Christ's love, I mean, that, that word is used, right? Comprehending, that's, that's more than just knowing it. It's more than just in your mind having an agreement, yes, God loves me. 
to comprehend is to, is to go deeper than that. It's, it's an experiential love as well. Yeah, you have to know it in your head, but it's deeper than mere knowledge. It's grasping, it's comprehending. We want to have some intellectual insight into God's love, but Paul wants them and he wants us to be empowered in order to grasp the dimensions of that love in their own experience. It's something that we can experience. And, and dare I say, something we even can feel. I know we get nervous sometimes when we're like, oh, feelings can be deceiving, feelings can be wrong, but I think God wants us to, to experience his love in deeper ways than to just know it and read it and have some understanding like we know about Abraham Lincoln and what he did. This is more, it's deeper than that. This is something that we can't muster up on our own, though. That God must empower it. And there's something about love's design that I think is important to make special note of. And when, when Paul makes this plea for our ability to comprehend Christ's love, he, he adds this really important phrase. He says, with all the saints. He says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. We have to understand that, that this... This experience is only for believers. And the term saint means someone who's set apart. It's not someone who did something good a long time ago and they earned their way to sainthood. You know, we use that term for some people. In fact, it just was happening recently, right, with uh, Pope John Paul II. They were trying to figure out if he should be a saint or not. (laughs) It's it's not something we figure out. It's something God says you are if you're a Christian. You're one of the saints. You're a Christian. You're part of the saints. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are one of the saints. And I think that there is a a point to pull from this phrase, and it's this, that, that experiencing Christ's love is a community event. It's a community event. Grasping the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depths of Christ's love is something that's to be shared with other believers. He says that you would comprehend with all the saints. Now, it's, in, it's impossible for you to comprehend with all the saints in the world right now by interacting with one another. There's a global sense in which we, we fellowship in Christ with all the saints, but there's an aspect where we are a part of a local church And you get to, in the local church, share and comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. It's a community event. The local church is the necessary place for you to be connected to all the saints. And it's it's in the local church where you're going to be planted, where you will be rooted and grounded so that you're going to grow into a greater understanding of Christ's love. And Look, the need to be planted in a local church will never end because we'll never come to the end of knowing and understanding Christ's love. So this is a good place for you to be. This is a necessary place for you to be and for me to be so that we can grow together. I mean, I think that's why Paul makes this statement that that kind of makes us scratch our head. He says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's like, okay, wait, you want me to know something that really I can't ever fully know? He says, yep. That's not fair. You know, we want to be people that can know something. You know, okay, this is how you do a problem. Okay, I get there. This is the answer. This is a set of information that you need to know for this event, for this test. Okay, I know it. Now it's time to move on. Well, 
the beauty of the Christian life is we spend our whole lives learning, pushing, growing to try to comprehend that which is uncomprehendable. It's not really a word, but you get the point. We'll never come to a complete knowledge of of God's love and who he is on this earth, but we're to pursue it as much as we can, and we need each other. We need each other to do it. You look around, front, back, left, and right of you. These are the people in your life that are used to help you grow in Christ. You remember the the giant redwood I was telling you about? Um, I mentioned that its root system spread out about 80 feet in a radial fashion, but what's really interesting about these trees is that the roots are, are narrow. They're only about one inch in diameter, and <clears throat> they only go down about 12 feet. So here's something that grows to about 400 feet with a root system that's pretty small. It doesn't go down that deep. But you know why they can grow and grow so tall and live so long? It's because they grow close together with other redwoods. It's interesting. It's one, it's one of, from what I've seen and studied, it's, it's one of the few trees that actually works this way. They're, they're, they, gl- they grow so close together that their root systems begin to intermingle. And so what is really a, a small, narrow, and shallow root base becomes super strong, super tight, super powerful because they grow together and their root systems all come and join I mean, left alone, those trees would not grow so big and they would not grow for so long as they do when they grow together. Growing together, they form a community that produces the largest trees in the world. This is a picture of our lives together. You grow stronger, firmer, with more power and understanding of God when you do it together than when you do it by yourself. Look, Christian life is a community event. It's not an isolated, I can worship God on my own type of faith. Can you worship God on your own without a church? Sure. Is it going to be as effective? Is it going to be the ideal as what God has for you? No. So that's why you're here. That's why you come. That's why you sit in these seats. That's why you go to a small group. That's why you, have, you go to these events and we go to conferences and we do all these things so that we can share together with all the saints to understand and comprehend the love of God and the love of Christ. And that's why you have pastors and teachers and people around you that can help because we grow stronger through community life, just like the Redwoods. So we've looked at love's foundation we've looked at love's design and i want to finish with some application and this is what i'm calling love's construction i want to offer some help on how the foundation of love is to be built upon to answer the question what should love look like so i can walk in obedience to god that's the question we want to answer what should love look like so that i can walk in obedience to god's word because again love is Love is strange at times. We have a certain definition in our own hearts. This is how you need to love me. And if you don't do this, then you're not loving me and I'm going to get mad at you and then we're going to part ways. That's, that's not necessarily what God is looking for. So what should love look like? The Christian life, it's, it's often des- described as a building and, 
And although Christ is the actual foundation, we, we want to establish some building blocks upon which we build on, on this foundation of love. And the first thing is this. It's God love. Okay, I mean, everything in the Christian life has to revolve around, everything in the Christian life should revolve around love, and every, everything is founded in love. And this foundation of love always begins with our love for God. Always begins with our love for God. I mean, Paul, Paul said it in our passage that the goal of life is to be filled with all the fullness of God. If this is the case, then our dealings with God have to be focused on our love for him. And look, that's going to affect everything that you do. It's going to affect how, how we speak to God, how we act before God. It's going to affect our overall attitude toward God. I mean, what's the, what's the greatest command? To love the Lord your God. And we're not, we're, we're not merely commanded to believe in God, and that's, that's important. Who else believes in God? Right? I mean, James tells us that the demons believe and they tremble, but they don't love God. We don't just believe in God. We're called to love God. We're called to love him with everything that's in us, right? That's why he goes through that kind of expansive description. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. He's our father. We are to love him as a child loves his father. We're, we're to love him because he's God and because he's good. We, we can't miss this first building block. Because if we miss this first one, everything else is going to fall. There won't be a strong enough foundation. And so the question is, like, you know, what do your prayers sound like? What do your dealings with God look like? Let your most important relationship, that with, that with God, be rooted and grounded in love. So God love is first. Second is people love. We don't, we don't stop with loving God. What do we do then? We love others, right? What's the second great command? First great command, love the Lord your God. Second great command, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look, if you're honest with yourself, you love yourself pretty, pretty well, pretty good. And God knows that. It's not always, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to have a healthy love for your own life. And, but it says, look, it, Think about how much you love yourself, love others with that same kind of energy, same kind of passion. And, and this is where the building starts to get a little shaky because <laughs> loving neighbors is tough. It's tough because I don't like all my neighbors. And it's tough because a lot of times they don't like me. And so... God says, you, you love your neighbor. And then, then he takes it to a whole other universe and says, not only do you love your neighbor, but love who? Love your enemies. You're like, I, I, don't even, I don't even understand that. How? <clears throat> I'm having enough trouble loving my wife and then my, my friends at church. Now you want me to love those who are actually coming against me and, and cursing me and abusing me? He says, yeah. He says, look, it's, it's easy to love people that love you back. He says, everybody does that. Even the person who doesn't love God loves people who love them back. He says, but you, if you're a Christian, you're 
different. You love differently. You think differently. And so you love people that persecute you. You give someone, when they steal from you, you, you give them more. When they slap you on the cheek, you, you turn and you give them the other one. He says, that, that's how different my economy is. And we say, wow, that is different. But that's what we do. We love others. We love people. We love God and we love people. God says you're different. He says, I've loved you so much that when you begin to comprehend that love, you will even love your enemies just like I did. That's what God did. Before before we were his, before we were Christians, before we came to that understanding, apart from Christ, we were his enemies. And he poured out his love to the point of blood on the cross. And he says, I loved my enemies with a breadth and length and height and depth that you will never fully know. And so you do the same. Even if you don't understand it, you do the same. Loving others is more than just believing it in your mind. It's more than just knowing it's right. It's living it out by your words and your actions, right? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I love you. I love everyone. I love the world. And then you're confronted with someone face to face and you have to actually display that love by how you act, how you speak. This is what Thomas Watson says, old Puritan pastor and author. He says, our love must not only lodge for a night, but we must dwell in love. As love must be sincere without hypocrisy, so it must be constant without deficiency. Love must be like the pulse, always beating, Not like those Galatians who at one time were ready to pluck out their own eyes for Paul and afterwards were ready to pluck out his eyes. Do you see it? I mean, love. Jesus comes marching in on a a donkey into Jerusalem. People are saying, Hosanna, this is it. This is the one. We love you. We love you. And then a few days later, the same people are crying in the streets, crucify him. And we we do the same. We do the same things. Maybe not to that level, but I love you as long as you're doing what makes me want to love you. And then once you cross that line, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, I love you, but I just got to back off. I can't, I can't show you that love anymore because you're not, you're not meeting the standard. Every relationship must be saturated in Christ's love. And I would say this, don't be satisfied until they do. Don't be satisfied until your relationships are saturated in Christ's love. Well, it's God love, it's people love, and it's word love. We have to love God's word. We have to love his commandments, his precepts. What did David say? Psalm 1. One of the, one of the best descriptions of Loving God's word, I think in all scripture, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You're like, that's great. That's me. I don't, I don't like those things. And then he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. There's that, light. There's that image of a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See, it's not just about abstaining and being away from the things that are bad. I don't go near the wicked. I don't sit in the seat of scoffers. 
I'm just going to be off by myself. He says, no, but you pursue something else. You run from what's evil and you pursue what's right. You pursue righteousness. And in this particular case, he says his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Our delight is to be in the law of the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes this. He says, so we must ask ourselves whether we love the Lord's commandments. Recall what the psalmist could say about this. Even under the old dispensation, he could but look forward vaguely to the dispensation in which we live. He lived in the days of shadows and types. Christ had not yet come. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given, but he could say, Oh, how I love thy law. I love thy commandments above gold. If he could love the law of God in his day, are we doing so in our day as Christians? You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, the psalmist is talking about loving the law of God. He didn't even... He just had an idea of the Messiah, of the Holy Spirit. This was all shadows and types back then, but now Christ has been revealed and we see it. And so this last question he says, are we doing so in our day as Christians? John tells us, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Listen, in order to keep his commandments, you have to love his commandments has to be something inside of you. You need to have a love for God, a love for his word. And so when we see the commandments and we're like, oh, this is awesome because look at what God has done for me. I love him so much, I'm going to do it. We are to love God's word so much that we put the ways of the world far from us because they don't mix. They don't mix with the foundation, the solid foundation in which we are rooted and grounded. I'd say this, church, cultivate a love for his word. Read it, meditate it, on it, memorize it, speak it, hear it, rightly preached, teach it to your children, teach it to each other, live by it. And the promise is you will be like a tree planted with a never-ending supply of water. It's a good picture. Finally, the last is to let love be stable and consistent. I'm saying enduring love. Let love be stable and consistent. Our society depicts love like the falling of snow, right? It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Eventually all that snow in Minnesota will go away. Paul tells us that love is patient and kind, right? And in, in, in the old King James it says, love suffereth long. We don't use that terminology too much these days, but look, it it suffers long because it's built on a solid foundation. It's rooted and it's grounded. It can withstand the stresses of life. It can withstand the pain of heartbreak, of sin. Change in others doesn't phase love because it's got strong roots. The trees, the buildings, the things that are signs of permanence, they are enduring because of the foundation that it has and the solid construction that it has to build upon. Love never fails. I mean, this is a whole lot more assuring than, gee, I hope we make it. Fingers crossed, you know, wish on a star that hopefully this marriage is going to last. It's going to make it. We're giving it our best shot. Well, guys, you know, we tried. We did, it just didn't work out. Not really in love anymore, so we, we move on. That's, that's not it. It's not it. No, love never fails. Now I understand there's, because of a fallen world, because of sin, there has been 
a lot of perversion and complication in the midst of marriage, in the midst of relationships, in the midst of love. And if, if you're a product of divorce, and I don't want you to hear this as condemnation, like, oh, you, you missed it. But we do see the, the measure of our lives measured against God's word, and we say, wow, this is the standard to which we're trying to live. Love never fails. And, and ultimately, it's talking about the love of Christ to us. Love may bend and sway at times because of the sin in this world. I mean, trials will come, strains in life will come, but love will never fail when Christ is the foundation because he never failed. We sing it in the hymn, right? When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. This is our our hope. Because if Christ's love, if there is even a a glimmer of, that his love is going to fail, we have no hope. We stand on the promises that, that God's love is so big, so high, strong, wide, that nothing can separate us from it. So I started out with the question, you know, how do you measure love? Um, Shakespeare's love test in, in King Lear, I mean, it gives, it gives us a good look at one way to measure love. But when I'm thinking of that, it made me think of another love test And it's a conversation that Jesus had with Peter, right? It's a similar scenario. Jesus is about ready to leave and give his authority over to his disciples. Peter was full of sorrow because he denied his Lord three times. And Jesus asks him, he says, do you love me? And three times Jesus asked Peter this question. And three times Peter gives the simple and sincere answer of, you know I love you. What was Jesus looking for? I mean, he, he wasn't looking for overstated words of flattery. Oh, yes, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. He wasn't looking for some superficial test to find out if, if Peter really loved him. He didn't, Jesus didn't need his love tank filled up. He didn't need a self-esteem boost. He was teaching Peter and us something about love. He says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. If you love me, then go tell my sheep how much I love them. Go, go help them understand how broad and how long and how high and how wide my love is. He says, if you love me, then you are going to be rooted and grounded in my love. And so the, the answer is this. If we want to measure love, then we look to Christ. He's, he's the image. He is the, the standard, the ideal of what perfect love is. And so when we look at our own lives and we look at our marriages, our friendships, our relationships, we're like, yeah, mine doesn't look like that. But there's hope. We rest in him, we run to the cross, we go, and we, we fall at the feet of the one who loved us to the end. That's our hope. That is our trust. And that's why we need him and we need each other to help us walk in that. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you. Thank you for your love. It's deeper, it's wider, it's stronger, it is more vast than anything that we can imagine. But yet you say pursue it. You say come after it. Come and comprehend. Come and grasp that which is incomprehensible. Search that which is unsearchable. 
And so here we are, God. We are here as a church coming to you and saying, help us. Help us understand love. Help us to live in, in a way that is rooted and grounded in the love that you have showed, that you have poured out for us, that this would affect everything, all of our relationships. For the marriages that are in here that are struggling, God, would you, would you reveal areas of, of selfishness, of pride, you reveal where there is a lack of love, true love, the way you've defined it for us. I pray, God, that we would know what it means to suffer long in our relationships, in every aspect of our lives, God, that we would, we would desire something more than what the world has to offer. And we would, some, we would want something more than The Bachelor, something more a fleeting emotional attachment to what this world has that we would want something deeper something foundational something that is rooted and grounded and may we do it together God may this be a church and may Riverside be a church that helps one another grow in this way just like the redwood our roots would intermingle and we would be strong together of who you are because of your goodness so thankful God that you saved us that you showed your love to the end for us help us to live in a worthy response to what you have done it's in Christ's name